Welcome to this week's edition of Beyond Texas. I'm Debbie F. Strong, your host and storyteller. We completed our three-week expose on Joan of Arc last week. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed producing it. This week, I'll be sharing a classic Somerset mom story. But first, I'd like to thank all of the podcast listeners from states other than Texas, where most reside. Here's a kind of quick list and a thank you to all doing their downloading of Beyond Texas Beyond Texas. Shout-outs to Huff, Ohio, Alhambra, Arizona, San Jose, California, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, Richmond, Kentucky, Prescott, Arizona, Germantown, Maryland, Lake Stevens, Washington, and West Lake Stevens, Washington, Brookfield, Illinois, Centennial, Colorado, an early adopter, Atlanta, Georgia, Maryville, Tennessee, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Salida, Colorado, Chandler, Arizona, Chicago, Illinois, Manhattan, New York, and Los Angeles, Flatbush, New York, Boardman, Oregon, Fort Smith, Arkansas, Springville, Utah, Orlando, Florida, and Jinx, Oklahoma, to name but a few. But I wanted to show you the smattering of diversity across the states, as well as the international places I mentioned last week, and naturally in Texas, there are many, many more. So I'll come to a list of some of those next week. Somerset Maugham was certainly one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century. He was a never-faltering machine of first-rate fiction in all the popular forms. He wrote novels and short stories, plays, movie screenplays, and travelogues. I'm not going to spend much time on his biography. I'm not going to spend much time on his biography except to point out what first drew me to him. Instead, I'm going to just let his work speak for itself. I'm going to share one of his shortest short stories. It's only six pages long. He was a master storyteller in every way, in detailed description, in his astute unveiling of human nature, in authentic dialogue, and he was a perceptive ethnographer. I love that he said, There are three rules to writing a good story. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. (laughs) That's delightful, and no doubt true, because there are no universal, sure-fire rules. But whatever rules he followed, they served him well in keeping his readers riveted to the page. His most famous work was Of Human Bondage. Probably second would be The Razor's Edge, both novels made into movies. His most critically acclaimed short story is called The Outpost. That's a story that first drew me to him when I was much younger, and it was just one part of that story that has always stuck with me over many, many decades. The story is about this proper Englishman named Warburton who lived on the remote island of Borneo, where he insisted on keeping up his British ways despite being so far from the motherland. Every couple of months, you see, he'd get a shipment of, say, six weeks' worth of London newspapers— he instructed his servants to give him only one edition of the newspaper each day with his morning tea. One a day. No matter how badly he wanted to know how the battle in the war mentioned in that morning's newspaper turned out, he would not look at tomorrow's paper until tomorrow. He wanted to maintain some semblance there in the jungle of an orderly, civilized life that he so much loved back home. He even dressed for dinner each evening, even though He generally dined alone. I think of Warburton often when I think about self-discipline. 
He is an example of the dozens of singularly fascinating mom characters made fascinating by their eccentricities. I recommend that you read The Outpost, but it's too long for me to share with you here. Instead, as I said, I've chosen one of his shortest stories. But though it's short, it is regarded as among his very best short stories because it has an O. Henry-esque ending, which is typical of his style. It's not an ending that turns the fictional world of the story suddenly 180 degrees, but it does leave you with something to reflect on for the remainder of the day, and perhaps long after, too. The Somerset Mom story I've chosen for you is called The Verger. The Verger is a man in the Anglican or Catholic Church who is a kind of roustabout. He does everything. He cleans the church. He makes sure the pre-ceremonial garments are pressed and beautiful. He cares for the holy artifacts and keeps them safe. He assists in baptisms and funerals and weddings. He even, in the old days, would dig graves in the church cemetery. This story is about a verger who has served the church wonderfully for many years, but one day the new vicar learns that he can neither read or write, and so he tells him that this situation is intolerable and he must devote himself to becoming literate. So we join Mr. Foreman, the verger, at the moment he has been called before the Supreme Church Committee to discuss his illiteracy and what's to be done about it. Mr. Foreman, we've got something rather unpleasant to say to you. You've been here a great many years, and I think his lordship and the general here agree with me that you've fulfilled the duties of your office to the satisfaction of everybody concerned. But a most extraordinary circumstance came to my knowledge the other day, and I felt it my duty to impart to the churchwardens. I discovered to my astonishment that you could neither read nor write. The verger's face betrayed no sign of embarrassment. He said, Oh, the last vicar knew that, sir. He said it didn't make no difference. He always said there was a great deal too much education in the world for his taste. Well, it's the most amazing thing I ever heard, cried the general. Do you mean to say that you've been a verger at this church for sixteen years and never learned to read or write? Well, I went into the service when I was twelve, sir. The cook in the first place tried to teach me once, but I didn't seem to have the knack for it. And then what with one thing and another, I never seemed to have the time. I've never really found the want of it. I think a lot of these young fellows waste a rare lot of time reading when they might be doing something useful. But don't you want to know the news? Don't you ever want to write a letter? No, my lord. I seem to manage very well without, and of late, you know, they've all these pictures in the paper. I get to know what's going on pretty well from the pictures. Me wife's quite a scholar, and if I want to write a letter, she writes it for me. It's not as if I was a betting man. Well, foreman, I've talked the matter over with these gentlemen, and they quite agree with me that the situation is impossible. At a church like St. Peter's Neville Square, we cannot have a verger who can neither read nor write. Understand me, foreman, I have no complaint to make against you. You do your work quite satisfactorily. I have the highest opinion both of your character and your capacity. But we haven't the right to take the risk of some accident that might happen owing to your lamentable ignorance. It's a matter of prudence as well as of principle. Don't you think that you could learn to read, foreman? 
Oh, no, sir, I'm afraid I couldn't not now. You see, I'm not as young as I was, and I couldn't seem able to get the letters in me head when I was a nipper. I don't think there's much chance of it now. Well, I don't wish to be harsh with you, foreman, but the church wardens and I have quite made up our minds. We'll give you three months, and if at the end of that time you cannot read and write, I'm afraid you'll have to go. Albert Edward Foreman had never liked the new vicar. He'd said from the beginning that they'd made a mistake when they gave him St. Peter's. He wasn't the type of man they wanted with a classic congregation like that, and now he straightened himself a little. He knew his value, and he wasn't going to allow himself to be put upon. I'm very sorry, sir. I'm afraid it's no good. I'm too old a dog to learn new tricks. I've lived a good many years without knowing how to read and write, and without wishing to praise myself. Self-praise is no recommendation, you know. I don't mind saying I've done my duty in that state of life in which, as it pleased a merciful providence, to place me. And if I could learn now, I don't know as I'd want to. Well, in that case, Foreman, I'm afraid you must go. Yes, sir, I quite understand. I shall be happy to, and I'll be handed in my resignation as soon as you found somebody to take my place. But when Albert Edward, with his usual politeness, had closed the church door behind the vicar and the two church wardens, he could not sustain the air of dignity with which he had borne the blow inflicted upon him. His lips quivered. He walked slowly back to the vestry and hung up on its proper peg his verger's gown. He sighed as he thought of all the grand funerals and the smart weddings he had seen. He tidied everything up, put on his coat, and hat in hand, walked down the aisle. He locked the church door behind him. He strolled across the square, but deep in his sad thoughts he did not take the street that led him home, where a nice strong cup of tea awaited him. He took the wrong turn. He walked slowly along. His heart was heavy. He did not know what he should do with himself. He didn't fancy the notion of going back to domestic service after being his own master for so many years, for the vicar and the church wardens could say what they liked. It was he that had run St. Peter's Neville Square. He could scarcely demean himself by accepting a situation. He had saved a tidy sum, but not enough to live on without doing something, and life seemed to cost more every year. He had never thought to be troubled with such questions. The vergers of St. Peter's, like the popes of Rome, were there, generally, for life. He had often thought of the pleasant reference the vicar would make in his sermon at Evensong the first Sunday after his death to the long, faithful service and exemplary character of their late verger, Albert Edward Foreman. He sighed deeply. Albert Edward was a non-smoker and a total abstainer, but with a certain latitude, that is to say, he liked a glass of beer with his dinner, and when he was tired, he enjoyed a cigarette. It occurred to him now that one would comfort him, and since he did not carry them, he looked about him for a shop where he could buy a packet of gold flakes. He didn't at once see one, and he walked on a little. It was a long street with all sorts of shops in it, but there was not a single one where he could buy cigarettes. That's strange, said Albert Edward. To make sure, he walked right up and down the street again. No, there was no doubt about it. He stopped and looked reflectively up and down. I can't be the only man as walks up and down this street wanting a cigarette. I shouldn't wonder but what a fellow might do very well with a shop here. Tobacco and sweets, you know. He gave a sudden start. That's an idea, he said. Strange how things come to you when you least expect it. 
He turned, he walked home, had his tea. You're very silent this afternoon, Albert, his wife remarked. I'm thinking, he said. He considered the matter from every point of view, and next day he went along the street, and by good luck he found a little shop to rent that looked as though it would exactly suit him. Twenty-four hours later he had taken it, and when a month after that he had left St. Peter's Neville Square forever, Albert Edward Foreman set up in business as a tobacconist and a newsagent. His wife said it was a dreadful come-down after being verger of St. Peter's, but he answered that you had to move on with the times. The church wasn't what it was, and henceforward he was going to render unto Caesar what was Caesar's. Albert Edward did very well. He did so well that in a year or so it struck him that he might take a second shop and put a manager in. He looked for another long street that hadn't got a tobacconist in it, and when he found it and a shop to rent, he took it and stocked it. This was a success, too. Then it occurred to him that if he could run two, he could run half a dozen. So he began walking all about London, and whenever he found a long street that had no tobacconist and a shop to rent, he took it. In the course of ten years, he had acquired no less than ten shops, and he was making money hand over fist. He went round to all of them himself every Monday, collected the week's takings, and took them to the bank. One morning when he was there, paying in a bundle of notes and a heavy bag of silver, the cashier told him that the manager would like to see him. He was shown into an office, and the manager shook hands with him. Mr. Foreman, I wanted to have a talk to you about the money you've got on deposit with us. Do you know exactly how much it is? Oh, not within a pound or two, sir, but I've got a pretty rough idea. Well, apart from what you paid in this morning, it's a little over 30,000 pounds. That's a very large sum to have on deposit, and I should have thought you'd do better to invest it. Oh, I wouldn't want to take no risk, sir. I know it's safe in the bank. But you needn't have the least anxiety. We'll make you out a list of absolutely guilt-edged securities. They'll bring you in a better rate of interest than we can possibly afford to give you. A troubled look settled on Mr. Foreman's distinguished face. I've never had anything to do with stocks and shares. I'd have to leave it all in your hands. The manager smiled. Well, we'll do everything. All you'll have to do is, next time you come in, just sign the transfers. Oh, I could do that all right, said Albert. But uh, how should I know what I'm signing? Well, I suppose you can read, said the manager, a trifle sharply. Mr. Foreman gave him a disarming smile. Well, sir, that's just it. I can't. I know it sounds funny-like, but there it is. I can't read or write only my name, and I only learned to do that when I went into business. The manager was so surprised he jumped up from his chair. That's the most extraordinary thing I've ever heard. Well, you see, it's like this, sir. I never had the opportunity until it was too late, and then somehow I wouldn't. I got obstinate-like. The manager stared at him as if he were a prehistoric creature. And do you mean to say that you've built up this important business and amassed a fortune of 30,000 pounds without being able to read or write? Good God, man, what would you be now if you had been able to read and write? Oh, I can tell you that, sir, said Mr. Foreman, a little smile on his aristocratic features. I'd be verger of St. Peter's Neville Square. What a wonderful ending. It is just perfect. Next week, we'll talk about, well, I'll surprise you. <laughs>